scripture reading this afternoon is from Psalm 51, which we'll read in connection with Lord's Day 33. It was a few weeks ago now that we looked at um, Lord's Day 31. Then Reverend Bout uh, preached to us from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 on really the exact same things that Lord's Day 32 speaks of, of how God's grace is that which compels our gratitude so that we would offer our lives in his service and do good works in response to his grace. And so we'll uh, move on now to Lord's Day 33. The next thing that our catechism speaks of is what is involved in genuine repentance, in um, turning away from the kinds of sins that question 87 speaks of and uh, toward the, the kind of life that is compelled by God's grace to live for him. Psalm 51 models that for us. You can turn to page 560 in your pew Bibles where we'll read that whole psalm, um, Psalm 51, which the superscription says is a psalm of David the king when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here the king says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit that I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Again, we'll read that in connection with Lord's Day 33 on page 888 in the back of your hymnals, which we'll read together responsively. Lord's Day 33. First question 88 asks, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? 
two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith conform to God's law and are done for his glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. Beloved, we um, use the word repent fairly often as Christians when uh, Jesus first came. It says in Mark chapter 1 that the message of his preaching was repent and believe the gospel. And so if we would understand our proper response to the message of the gospel of the kingdom, if we would be citizens of that kingdom, then it's essential that we understand repentance. In fact, that's why our catechism is it's just getting into the grateful response required to what God has done in the gospel. One of the first things that it does is it defines for us the terms of repentance. And it consists in really two things. First, in turning away from sin by confession. And then in turning toward the Lord by faith. That's how Lord's Day 33 defines repentance. Turning away from sin by confession and turning toward the Lord by faith. Both of which we see in Psalm 51. This is one of, of several of what theologians call the, the penitential psalms that are, are inspired by God's Spirit to show us what repentance looks like. In fact, you can even hear that word repentance in the term penitential. Hear the the similarity there. God uh, gives us psalms like this, or, or Psalm 32, or Psalm 130, to lead us in repentance. Which Martin Luther rightly said in the first of his 95 theses is to characterize the whole of our Christian life. The first of his 95 theses, he said, repentance isn't just a one-time act, but it is ongoing throughout the, the, the entirety of our Christian life. And so as we seek to be instructed in this ongoing work of repentance, we look at Psalm 51 together, and uh, we notice first how David turns away from his sin by confession. This we really see in the first seven or so verses especially. One of the first things we see about David's confession is that it is um, both vertical and also horizontal. When we say vertical, we're speaking of of David's relationship with God, his his relationship upward, and then horizontal, his relationship with men. Um, David confesses his sin vertically toward God when he says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. He's addressing God in heaven. And then in verse 4, he says that he has sinned against God and God alone. Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There is 
very clearly in, in David an acute sense of, of the vertical dimension of his sin, which there must be for real repentance to occur. Real repentance is not just sorrow over sin's consequences. Real repentance is, is not just getting caught and so now you have to admit what you've done. Real repentance isn't even just um, sorrow over the relationships or the, the earthly uh, things that are affected by our sin, but, but real repentance must include a, a genuine godly sorrow for having sinned against the Lord. I think it was R.C. Sproul who used to call sin cosmic treason. It is sinning against the king of the universe, and real repentance begins with a recognition of just that and a godly sorrow over it. That's what a godly sorrow is. It's motivated by a vertical realization of how we've sinned against God. Second Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 7, uh, differentiates worldly sorrow from, from godly sorrow. And that, that's just the difference. Worldly sorrow is confer, uh, uh, concerned, first of all, with, with worldly matters. How my reputation is affected, how my relationships are affected. But godly sorrow begins with God. And yet we also see in David that it doesn't, doesn't stop there. But he also goes and he confesses his sin before men. He confesses it not only before Nathan, when Nathan the prophet can, confronts him in 2 Samuel 12, but, but he also confesses his sin before all mankind by writing this psalm for us. Remember, this is David the king. And sometimes people in places of, of leadership might be tempted to think, I, I can't admit what I've done is wrong because that, that would somehow undermine my authority. But David the king leads here by weakness and, and by uh, confessing what he's done not only before all Israel, but before all mankind throughout all of history by recording this psalm and, and the superscription that goes along with it in the annals of history. He says, by the way, these superscriptions that we read in our Bibles, these are original in the Hebrew. You might have in your, your ESV something like, created me a clean heart, O God. That's, that's just a, a sort of title that the editors are, are providing. That's not inspired. But when it says there, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, that's, that's original. That's inspired by God's Spirit. That's David the king making sure we understand just what he has done, recording in the annals of history that the nature of his sin. And Calvin said of this superscription that David here uncovers himself, publishing his shame for all to see, not only in his lifetime, but to the end of the world. David confesses his sin before men. David doesn't demand to dictate the circumstances of who knows, but he uncovers himself completely. Like Job says in Job 31, he doesn't conceal transgression by, by hiding iniquity in his heart because he stood in fear of the multitude, because the contempt of the families terrified him, so he kept silent, but he confesses his sin. We need to be willing to, to confess our sins to others. For while the Bible doesn't say that we must go to priests to make confession, it does tell us that sin thrives in the dark and it will continue to do so until it is exposed to the light 
by confession. James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another. For until we do, and we know this from experience, our sins remain in the dark where it, it, it continues to fester. And so we need to confess them. It's actually why Luther and, and Calvin were not so opposed to, to even continuing to make confession of sin to, to clergy. Because they understood that, that we need the light of confession to expose our sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his, his classic book, Life Together, that sin demands to have a man by himself. The more isolated he is, the more destructive the power of sin will be over him. It wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness. It says sin must be brought to the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged, both vertically and also horizontally. That's the first thing that we see from David's confession. But we also see not just a, a mere lip service of, of going through the motions and, and, and confessing vertically and horizontally as a duty, but we see a genuine sorrow for sin, that this is motivated by, by a hatred that he has for sin, that he hates it and wants to run away from it. We see that all throughout this first section of the psalm where David confesses not only his actual sin, but, but even goes so far as to confess even his original sin. His actual sin in verse 1 where he, he calls it transgression. Verse 2, iniquity, sin. Verse 3 again, my transgression, my sin. David is using all of the vocabulary that there is for, for his sin. Verse 4, he calls it evil. He, he owns his sin. Notice those, those, uh, those pronouns, my evil, my sin. He owns it and he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say that it was merely a lapse in judgment. He doesn't say I made some mistakes. But he calls it sin, transgression, and evil and he calls it his evil. This is a necessary part of, of our confession, calling sin what it is. There's a professor named Wade Mullen who, who's put together what he calls an, an apology scorecard that I've mentioned before. It follows the acronym SCORE where, where he says that a true confession, um, S, surrenders the right to defend oneself, which, which David does. There is no justification for his sin. There's no excuses that are made. It C, um, confesses what you've done, as, as the Westminster Confession says, naming particular sins particularly, which David does. Not just a general repentance, but a, a particular, a, a specific confession. And O, owns your active role in the sin that you've committed. We, we see that, again, in the personal pronouns that David uses and his, his refusal to, to blame anyone else like Bathsheba. Or Nathan. He also R recognizes the harm that's been done by his sin. Notice in verse 14, he, he calls it blood guiltiness. He recognizes that blood is on his hands. And then he also E empathizes with those who were hurt, being grieved and filled with godly remorse. 
which we see in how David recognizes the harm that has been done to Zion by his sin. In verse 18, his, his desire that the walls of Zion would be built up. He recognizes as king the way that his sin has, has, has affected the entire covenant people of God. And so he, he, he um, prays that the walls of Zion would be built up. Uh, David, we, we might say, scores a, a five out of five on the apology scorecard. He surrenders the right to defend himself. He confesses his sin specifically. He owns his active role in it. He recognizes the harm that's been done, and he empathizes by genuine grief and remorse over those affected. In all this, he confesses his sin. Yet not only his actual sin, but, but even his original sin in verses 5 and 6. And this perhaps is a little bit surprising. Why, why would David even go so far as to confess that in verse 5? And he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? We might think here that David's going a little bit too far. But in actual fact, David is recognizing that his corruption and his depravity are total, and so he needs a full cleansing. David recognizes that his problem is not just his need for a a, um, pardon of, of a particular wrong, but what he needs is deliverance from himself. That's what he's confessing in verses 5 and 6. As he probes beneath the sins that he has committed, he finds the root cause not in what others have done, but in his own heart. And so he sides with God against himself. As we must also. Confessing that we sin because we're sinners. That's what he's doing in verses 5 and 6. He's not saying, I sinned because of something that someone else did. But I sinned because that's who I am in my heart. And so he, he sides with God against himself, and, and we must do the same, confessing that we sin because we are sinners, and therefore we need God, as it says in verse 10, to change our hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. That's what David models for us, confessing his sins both vertically and horizontally, being genuinely sorry for it and grieved by both his actual and even his original sin, having a broken and contrite heart. And implied by all of this is what question 89 says, that he desires to run away from it. We don't sense in this psalm a a flirting with sin. We don't see in this psalm David getting or or staying as as close to the line as as he can while still justifying and saying, I'm not not technically sinning, as we sometimes do, but he hates his sin. He hates how he's done evil in God's sight. I I was um, tempted after reading Lord's Day 33 to read chapter 15 of the Westminster Confession as well. I, I commend that to you to read Uh, Later on, a beautiful chapter on repentance unto life, but I have to read at least this. um, Paragraph 2, speaking of repentance, it it says that a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of, of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. And it goes on to say how he he grieves for and hates those sins 
as to turn from them all unto God. There is in David a sense of the odiousness of his sins, that they're evil and he wants to run away from them. His heart, like Westminster Confession, chapter 15 says, is broken and contrite over it. And yet this is, this is an important next step. Even though he is broken over his sin, he doesn't stop there. The psalm doesn't just end after, say, verses 1 through 7, but, but even though he is broken over his sin, he yet trusts in the God who forgives. There's not only a public undressing of himself before the world through all time, not only a confession toward heaven of his sin where he names specific sins and owns them, siding with God against himself, being grieved and filled with remorse, but all of that leads him to look to the God who forgives. Do you see how how beautifully God-centered this psalm is? Verse 1, what does David do? But he delights in who God is as overflowing with steadfast love and abundant mercy, the same thing we sang of from Psalm 103. Verse 2, again, he, he confesses or, or, or trusts that, that based on those attributes that he's just named in verse 1, that God will be willing to wash him thoroughly and to cleanse him from his sin. That, that because he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, even after David has committed murder and sexual sin and lied and stolen and abused his office, that God is willing to receive him. Again, to quote from, from chapter 15 of the Westminster Confession, he, he understands that there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. David understands that. That's not to say that God looks the other way at his sin, that, that God just sort of, sort of winks at his sin. Verse 4 says that God is just, and so he must punish sin. So God doesn't look away from his sin, but, but on the basis of a substitutionary act of atonement, the just and holy God will receive him and cleanse him. Which is what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where God is able to put away David's sin by transferring the death penalty that he deserves on at least three different counts to his son. That infant son who dies for his sin. As we said this morning, in the assurance of pardon, a son of David bears his sin that he might go free. That's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, that after Nathan the prophet confronts David and and David confesses his sin, Nathan says, God has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of your sin, the child who was born to you shall die. A son of David dies in his place. A pattern that that points us ahead in redemptive history to the true son of David who will take David's sin on himself, identifying with and becoming a murderer and sexual sinner in his place on the cross that he might go free. Indeed, Christ will sing this psalm with him, identifying with David in his sin, becoming sin for him, 2 Corinthians 5, so the just and holy God can receive him and cleanse him. And even in his kindness and mercy, give him a sign of that cleansing in verse 7. David says, purge me with hyssop, 
that I shall be clean. Here, David is referring to the, the ceremonial law, to the, the external and, and ceremonial signs that assure him of God's pardon. Not unlike God has given us in baptism. Just like the hyssop of which David speaks, God has given us too an external sign and pledge of his cleansing. David teaches us how to use that. He he here appeals to God's mercy, but he doesn't just stop there. He also appeals to the outward signs that God has appointed, and he shows us that when we have sinned against God, we don't wallow in our guilt, but we look to the one who is both just and the justifier, who gave his son, and then also gives us a sign of cleansing in the waters of baptism. We believe what he's promised. David teaches us that there is nothing pious about doubting God's promise in the gospel. That there is nothing pious about being, being preoccupied with our sins that we fail to look to Christ that we trust in the promise that God has made and has signified for us. Calvin said of this verse, when we have committed an offense against God, let us turn to our baptism and pray. He'll be pleased to give us what was there signified, the purging of our uncleanness by the blood of Christ into which we must plunge ourselves each time we are soiled with our sin. Let us be encouraged to plunge into his blood since the promise of his cleansing has been sealed in our baptism. As you confess your sins before God and are grieved over them, he wants to assure you by the promise of the gospel signified in baptism that as you are genuinely grieved and hate your sin, turning away from it in faith, God will hide your face from his, or hide his face from your sin, verse 9. And he will not see you in your sin, but he will see you in his son. That's the promise of the gospel. In fact, that's the same thing we sang from Psalm 103. He doesn't see you in your sin, but he sees you in his son. And turning away from your sin by confession isn't complete until you cling to that promise that God in Christ receives even sinners like David and sinners like you and me. Again, as it says in the Westminster Confession, that there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. David models for us what true confession and true repentance look like. Then having confessed his sin and and having looked to the one who washes him with hyssop, he also teaches us to go forward with wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to God's will by doing every kind of good work. That's what, what our catechism says. That it's not just the dying away of the old man, but the rising to life of the new with a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to God's will by doing every kind of good work in true faith and for God's glory. As we see in questions 90 and 91, as we see in the last half of Psalm 51, that we turn toward the Lord by faith in joy for what he's done. And you see that in verse 8 where David says, having been purged with hyssop, let me hear joy and gladness. Make the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's speaking of, of the joy that fills the heart of the forgiven child of God. 
He's speaking of the same thing he says in Psalm 32. He says that when he kept silent, his bones wasted away. He was groaning all the day. God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was dried up as the heat of summer. But then he acknowledged his sin to God. And and throughout the rest of Psalm 32, there is an overwhelming note of, of joy and of gladness. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. David is is showing us that there is a a connection between our sins and and the way that we feel. That when our sins are forgiven, our heart is filled with joy. And and so he's reminding us that the Christian life is not to be characterized by the the guilt of, of the first half of this psalm, but rather by the joy of the last half of this psalm, having been forgiven. Confessing your sin and turning toward the Lord by faith means going in joy for what he's done. The kind of joy that we sang up from Psalm 103, the kind of joy that, that we see in verse 10 of this psalm with a renewed and steadfast spirit, not wallowing in your guilt, but joyfully trusting in what Christ has done. With that joy of salvation, Verse 12 speaks up. David in this psalm and in Psalm 32 shows us that true repentance leads to joy. To that overwhelming feeling of guilt that he spoke of in Psalm 32 or that he speaks of here in Psalm 51 being lifted and his countenance being changed. Commentator James Hamilton says there is a profound connection between our sin and our moods. Sin really does spoil everything. But the confession of sin and the pursuit of holiness works happiness. Kind of joy that we sang of from Psalm 103 that we see in verses 13 to 19 of this psalm. We see that confession brings joy and relief and happiness and produces a genuine desire then to serve God. So we see in Lord's Day 33, after the dying away of the old self comes a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to God's will by doing every kind of good work. And those who are truly sorry for their sin, who confess it and own it before God, are assured of his gracious pardon in Christ, then desire to serve him in the way that David does in these last seven verses. Or he wants to teach others about this gospel of forgiveness so that they might turn to him too. And so he says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners return to you. Sinners like him. He's not here standing above and over them. He he is one of them. But now having received God's gracious pardon, he desires to extend that offer to others. And to sing of it in verses 14 and 15 where where he sings aloud of God's righteousness and his lips declare God's praise. This is grateful service to God in worship and in witness in response to what he's done. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we heard a few weeks ago in view of God's mercy offering his body as a living sacrifice which is his spiritual act of worship. It's also ours. Because God has dealt with us in the same way that he has with David. And so we offer our very selves as a sacrifice, verse 17, 
to him. But not the sacrifice of external formalistic worship that merely goes through the motions of of serving him with hearts that are far from him. Rather, the sacrifice of a heart that is broken by our sin and truly desires to serve God. The sacrifice that is offered in faith, question 91, that, that conforms to God's law, it is done for his glory. David recognizes that the only fitting response to this merciful and gracious God of Psalm 51 is to do just that. Is a life of service to him in worship and in witness, born out of true faith, conforming to his law, running away from the sin that led to all of this, and earnestly seeking to serve God in a way that isn't born of human opinion or human tradition, but of wholehearted joy in God through Christ. It's interesting, Psalm 51 follows just after Psalm 50, where God in that psalm, in, in Psalm 50, rejects the formalistic worship of those who are members of his covenant community, yet love sin. At the end of Psalm 50, in verses 17 through 20, God says, you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. You are pleased with those who steal. You keep company with adulterers, and you give your mouth free reign for evil and speak against your brother. And yet, verses 8 and 9, you offer me sacrifices. Verse 16, God says, you recite my statutes, and you take my covenant on your lips. You, you recite the creeds, and you come to the table. But God says he rebukes and rejects their worship. He is not pleased with it. And this is what David has come to understand in Psalm 51. He had been doing that. Taking God's covenant on his lips while lying and stealing and killing and committing adultery. That's not the sacrifice that God is pleased with. He doesn't desire our formalistic worship where we go through the motions yet refuse to confess sin. But he says, genuine repentance is the way to please me. Genuine repentance is the way into my kingdom. That was what Saul failed to understand. But David does. That a broken and contrite heart is the kind of sacrifice God desires. And then a heart that that because of his grace in the gospel more and more hates sin and runs away from it but loves and delights live according to God's law. That's what he wants. That's what Jesus came seeking when he said repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news of of Psalm 51 that is received with a posture of humility, humbling yourself and confessing your sin that the old man might be put to death. And then rising to life in wholehearted joy in God through me that loves and delights to live according to my law by doing every kind of good work out of true faith in the gospel, not going through the motions but so grateful for what God has done that you cannot help but to offer your life as a living sacrifice in worship and in witness for God's glory and his alone. May God so work this spirit of Psalm 51 in us by his grace, and may we learn to return to this psalm often to learn what it means that when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he will that the entire life of the believer 
would be one of repentance. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in your condescending kindness, you give us examples in your word of what true repentance looks like. You model it for us in the Psalms. That Christ himself, who inspired these Psalms by his spirit, models for us what repentance looks like. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to make Psalm 51 a psalm that we would know well. That we might learn by it the language and shape of repentance, confessing particular sins both to you and to each other with genuine sorrow, running away from them and seeking to put them to death. So that we might serve you not in the way of Psalm 50, taking your covenant on our lips while living in sin, but the way of Psalm 51 confessing our sin and believing the gospel and and then going in gratitude for what you've done to offer our lives as living sacrifices in worship and in witness for your glory and yours alone. We pray in Jesus' name.